Oh, Lord, we come to you because you are powerful. We come before you today because you are holy. And we come before you today unworthy in ourselves, but made worthy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you that when we come to you and we find that the doors are open, we find that your ear is actually inclined to us. You've been waiting for us to pray. You're not reluctant to answer. You're not reluctant to listen. But we thank you, Lord, that you open the doors with joy and with willingness. And we thank you, Father, that you intervene in our lives with or without our prayers. But oh, how you would rather do it and how you would rather have us to welcome you and to praise you and to honor you and to walk with you as you take us through the trials and the valleys of life as well as through the joys and we pray father that you would fill us with that joy unspeakable the bible says full of glory we pray lord that the joy of the lord would be our strength we pray that we would have your joy and peace lord jesus that you spoke of that you said the world can't give because if it can't give it then it can't take it away and we pray lord because as we sang that song and as it began to swell and we felt the emotion rise in us, we're going to be before you and you have given us life beyond the grave. But we think about all of the people that we know who don't have life beyond the grave. All that awaits them is the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And there's only one way out. And it's not coming to church. It's not being like us. The only one way out is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, forgive us when in our pride we don't share and we don't care. Forgive us that when in our legalism we're happy with our life the way that it is. Forgive us, Father, when we can not really think that much about other people or see opportunities around us. Open our eyes that we would see and we would have hearts willing to take the opportunities that you give us. Thank you that you didn't call us all to be a Billy Graham or somebody like that. But you did call us to maybe give a cup of cold water in your name and then share the gospel with somebody. You did call us to be friends with people who need to know Christ. And you did call us to be a good influence upon other believers. Help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. So help us to do what we've been called and created to do. That we uh, would not try to copycat anyone else. We would just do what you've called us to do. Where you've called us to do it. And we would do it with the people that you put in our path. And Father, if we ever branch outside of that, may it never be for the praise of man. May it never be to be noticed. May it never be because we think it will make us more righteous. May it simply be because you've opened a door and we're amazed at the power of God. We're amazed at how you use us. And so, Lord, as we think about our church, we pray that you would bless this service. We pray you bless all of our services and bless it in a way so that our people leave knowing you better, knowing your word better, and uh, to be better witnesses everywhere we go. We pray that it would be that sin is killed and eradicated in our lives so that we live a holy and pure life before you. And we pray that it puts a fire in our heart to share the gospel with the lost and the dying. And we pray this, Lord, that whenever we help Roosevelt Middle School, that the fire in our heart would be not just that they get 
food for a meal, but that they, they get food for their soul and they come to know Christ. We pray, Lord, that our Hispanic ministry would lead many, many people to faith in Jesus Christ and, and uh, to be discipled. And we ask you to bless Brother Max and all who work in that. We pray, Lord, that when Awana starts, we pray, Lord, that it would be a fire in the hearts of all of the workers to love those kids, to share the gospel with those children, and to see them come to know Jesus Christ. We pray that that would be the impetus behind our student ministry, behind our Sunday school, behind everything that we do, singing in the choir, being in the orchestra, whatever it may be, may it be that we want God to be glorified and people to be saved. May we never get away from any of those things and may we be a good witness and a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ in all we do. Now open our eyes and open our ears as we look into John chapter 1 now. And uh, I pray, Lord, that this would all come together, that it would make sense. Pray that it would feed our souls. Pray that it would encourage us. And pray, Lord, that as we look a little bit more at John the Baptist, give us a hero. We need heroes nowadays. And we don't want to worship anybody. We just want to have some people that we can look at and admire and follow in their footsteps. And we've got one in John the Baptizer. So, Lord, we thank you for this and we thank you for him. And we pray, Lord, that he would be pleased to know that his life is still having an impact today. And even though we're not in Israel and we're not by the Jordan River, we still love and admire this man who stood for you. And may we do the same, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll take your Bibles this morning, we're in John chapter 1. We have finally finished with the prologue John's been setting out in these verses why he's writing this book and what it's about and it's about Jesus and now he brings us into the first day and the first week of Jesus public ministry and we're going to see several different witnesses here but the first two days are occupied with John and so John chapter 1 verse 19 and when I say John most of the time I'm referencing John the Baptist in here and uh, that was just his description. The wasn't his middle name, and Baptist wasn't his last name, of course. And uh, I guess we could call you the same thing. You could be whatever the Baptist, uh, because we baptize as well. Look at verse 19 of uh, John chapter 1. Now this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And uh, there's a little bit more in that than just, now what was your name again? How, you know how we do that. Now this is, this is a little bit more uh, threatening. Who are you? Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, meaning he didn't hesitate or mislead, but confessed, I am not the Christ, if that's what you're thinking. Verse 21. And they asked him, well what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. Uh Uh-oh. The Pharisees. Get that? And verse 25 says, And they asked him, saying, Well, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me as uh, preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, these, that doesn't mean much to us, but they would have understood that completely. Verse 28. These things were done in Bethorabah, uh, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Your version may say Bethany, but the King James and New King James uses a, a different title for that town, so we don't get it mixed up with the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's a different town in a different location, and this is where John was baptizing. It's right off of the Jordan River. And so um, when we read all of this, we, we look at John. Here he is out here in his you know, camel's hair uh, coat, uh, cloak, and uh, his leather belt. And he's just had breakfast of locust and wild honey. And uh, I wonder what his breath was like. And uh, then he's out there baptizing in the river. Now, this is a desert region, so there's not a lot of water there except in the Jordan River. And the Jordan River, in some places, it's... Uh, Pretty nice and pretty impressive. In other places, it's not. You remember back in the Old Testament, the um, Syrian, Naaman, he had leprosy and he didn't know what to do about it. And his uh, a slave girl in his household was from Israel. And she said, go see the prophet of God. And so Naaman goes, okay, I'll tr- I've tried everything else. So he goes to see Elisha and Elisha says, go out and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times. Remember Naaman, what he said? You got to be kidding me. In that muddy river, don't we have better rivers than that in Syria? Well, that's because the Jordan is not all that big or impressive, and most of it flows through a a desert area, and it's not clear, cool, blue water like you see in our baptistry or any others. It's it's a muddy, dirty river, and uh, at certain times of the year, it's worse than others. And uh, so John is baptizing at that place, and uh, it's described here for us. And uh, this place that he describes is just north of the Dead Sea. And so um, different than the Bethany that Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived at. And so John is out there baptizing and people are coming out in droves. Now you know how uh, word spreads whenever there's kind of a fad or something happening. Everybody wants to go. If you have Guy Fieri come to your restaurant, you're probably going to be crowded for a while. And uh, that if he, especially if you make it on the TV show. Well, the same thing happens here. People go, they hear what John says, and they uh, go through this ritual of baptism. The word means immersion. And so they're taking them into the river and they're dunking them down under the water to symbolize repentance and cleansing. A little bit different than New Testament Christian baptism. But nonetheless, this is John as he is doing the work that God has called him to do. And people start coming. People start coming, and people start coming more and more, and they begin to multiply. So the word gets back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is uh, back to the west of where John is baptizing, a little bit north 
and west of where he is baptizing. And, uh, you know, in those days when they didn't have instant communication or anything like that, and they didn't have the same transportation we do, that's kind of a big deal. And so as they hear about it, and we read in here that it was the Pharisees who heard about it, Pharisees are always suspicious, always suspicious. And even if you're doing something they might approve of, you probably didn't do it right, you probably didn't do it at the right time or in the right way, or even on the right day. So they've got to check this whole thing out. And we find as we read through the Gospels that they really were not as concerned about getting it right as they were, don't let us lose any of our status or any of our power. And that's how you know how fleshly uh, it really was here. And so they send a delegation down to John the Baptist and they're going to get to the bottom of all of this stuff that's going on and figure out why it's happening. So the first thing we want to talk about today is the interrogation. This was not just, hey, what's going on? Oh, that's cool. This was an interrogation. They were sent from Jerusalem, from headquarters, from the temple, and they were sent by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of a small group, but extremely influential, and people were afraid of them, and they're nervous. Whenever you saw a Pharisee, you got a little nervous. Did I do everything right? Did I do the right thing? Kind of like if you were... Um, Maybe asked to eat at the White House or maybe uh, uh, to get fancier, maybe to eat in England and you're eating at Buck Buckingham Palace and you're going to be thinking, how do I dress? How do I act? Do I touch the king? Do I not touch the king? Do I speak or, or listen or do I uh, respond? What, what do we do? Uh, and you would want to know all the rules of etiquette. It's kind of like that whenever a Pharisee would show up in your synagogue or if a Pharisee were to come by your house to eat with you or if they came to your place of business. Am I dressed right? Am I doing everything right? Do I have cotton and linen mixed or whatever it was that they couldn't do? I mean, all of those things the Pharisees scrutinized everything and they pointed out everywhere where you might be wrong or anything that might not be right so people were always kind of nervous around the pharisees kind of like the buffalo and wildebeest in africa whenever a lion shows up or they get a whiff of one they all get a little bit nervous that's the way pharisees seem to be so they come to john but did you notice in here that with john there seemed to be no hesitation. There seemed to be no nervousness, no stammering. There wasn't anything to where John tried to be vague or anything. He was very blunt. He was very upfront. And uh, he was very clear about everything that he was saying. And so when they are coming to him for this interrogation, it says that they were the Jews. Now, don't get the idea that this is anti-Semitic, the Jews. But understand this. When John uses this term, the Jews, uh, he is going to use it 68 times in the Greek text of this particular gospel. Now, remember, Jesus is a Jew. John, the author of the book, of, is a Jew. And John the Baptist is a Jew. But the Pharisees are also Jews. And the Levites and the Sadducees, they're also Jews. So when he talks about this, he's not talking about all of them because there were Jews that followed Jesus. There were Jews that loved Jesus. And there were Jews that became disciples of Jesus. But he's speaking, whenever this term is used in this gospel, it usually has a little bit 
of a hostile attitude toward it when the Jews sent these people. The Jews sent these people. Talking about those in leadership, those in power, those that are elite, those who would be suspicious of anyone or anything that is new or different. They're very big, as you know, on tradition in all of this. And so uh, that's who is coming. The Jews sent someone. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, there's a neutral aspect to this because these people are Jewish. Sometimes it might be positive, but most often it refers to hostile Jewish proponents um, of Judaism and opponents to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why are they bugging John the Baptist? He's a very popular figure at this particular point, and he is attracting a lot of attention, and they always saw that as a threat to them. Is this guy undermining us? Is this guy going to undo us? But there's another reason. Do you remember who John the Baptist's father was? Well, in case you've forgotten, he was a guy named Zacharias. You know what Zacharias' occupation was? He was a priest. A priest in the temple. This is a very important, prominent guy. In other words, John the Baptist grew up in kind of a cushy household. He was well-educated, he was well-thought of, and he was right there with all the temple rituals and ceremonies. He was right there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, probably had some of them over to their house for dinner occasionally and probably went to some of their houses. That's the way he was raised. He had really nice clothing. And as I said uh, just a moment ago, very well educated. This is the way John is. Well, he certainly isn't living like it now. He's wearing a, a, a garment made out of camel's hair. And he's got a leather belt around him. And he doesn't, he, why didn't he get a haircut? He had taken a Nazarite vow. He won't participate in drinking alcohol with them. Because uh, from the time of his birth, he wasn't supposed to taste alcohol. He was a lifelong Nazarite. Not Nazarene, that's somebody from Nazareth. But a Nazarite, that's a particular vow of consecration to the Lord. And some Jews did it for 30 days. Some did it for 60 days. Even the Apostle Paul did it in the book of Acts when he went to the temple. But John the Baptist is one of those that was a Nazarite from birth. And so he doesn't live like a priest. He doesn't act like a priest. He's not ministering where the priest would be. Why isn't he at the temple? Well, somebody might say, well, maybe he just wasn't qualified. There were no qualifications to be a priest except bloodline. Being a priest in Israel was kind of like being a king or a queen or something like that in England. That was just your family. You were born into that. And so John, being born in the tribe of Levi, of the household of Aaron, and because his father was a priest, John also would have been considered a priest. He's sure not acting like one. We better send somebody else out to find out, what's this kid doing? Now, by kid, he was young by Jewish standards. He was about the age of 30. He was about six months older than Christ. Christ started his public ministry at about the age of 30, and John would be right in there with him, just a little bit older than the Lord Jesus. 
But he is doing this ministry before Jesus is ever presented. It's caused a ripple. It's caused a stir. And so these people back at the temple in Jerusalem, they meet together, maybe even the Sanhedrin, we don't know. And they say, what, what is this guy? Have you heard about this guy? No, I haven't heard anything about him. Well, I was looking on Instagram, not really, but I saw him. And uh, look, look what's happening and look what people are doing. And someone said, you suppose we probably ought to check this out? Who's doing it anyway? Well, it's that kid of Zacharias. You know, the one that when Elizabeth got pregnant, Zachariah couldn't speak. And then the boy is born. And then when Zachariah names him John, all of a sudden he could speak. This kid's been weird ever since he's been born. And, uh, you know, uh, the way he was raised and all of that. And now he goes off and instead of living a life of privilege, instead of living a life of ease, he's out there in the desert like he thinks he's Elijah or something like that. A weirdo. Well, we better check it out. There's no telling what a weird guy like that might be saying. And he might be undermining and leading a revolution against everything that we've done. Worse than that, he might stir up people so much so that Rome sends soldiers in thinking there is some kind of an uprising. So all of this is kind of stirring and going on and they've got to go figure all of this out. And so they go there and they say, uh, we've got some questions for you. Who are you? Who are you? And uh, I, I guess he probably could have said, Well, you know me. You know, I've been around you all my life. You know my dad. You know my mom. You know all of this kind of stuff that's going on. And uh, what do you mean, who am I? And they said, uh, Well, you know, there's something we wanted to ask you about what you say and think about yourself. Now, you'll notice when you read the text, they never actually ask this question. This is the elephant in the room. This is the uh, uncomfortable thing. And maybe you can see a, a guy here that's a, <clears throat> uh, John, there's a, uh, how about them Dodgers? Right? How about them Yankees? How'd your football team do yesterday? I mean, there seems to be something here like an elephant in the room. I want you to pick this up. And before they can say anything, John the Baptist goes, I'm not the Christ. <clears throat> That's a whole nother set of problems. If he were to say, yeah, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah, that brings up a lot of things. I mean, the Romans would be upset about that. The Jewish uh, uh, organizations and religion and uh, the power structures would all be upset. I mean, like they were with Jesus, of course. And so uh, here they are going, okay. So they go on and they go, okay, then, well, uh, are you Elijah? I mean, you look like him. You're talking like him. And when you read back in, uh, uh, in the Kings, the book of the Kings, uh, Second Kings, I believe it is, uh, maybe First Kings, I don't remember right now, but you can look it up. You got a table of contents. And, uh, you know, you are dressed like him and you're living out here in the desert like him. This is just weird. Are you Elijah? And his answer is, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, then are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Now, he doesn't name what prophet. He doesn't put a proper name to that prophet at all. But everybody knew what he was talking about. What he was talking about here is 
there was something that Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, Moses writes and he says that the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me for you. Can you imagine uh, a prophet like me. And so there were different people of different times and different eras who would claim to be, some would claim to be the Messiah. There were a lot of Jewish people who named their kids Yeshua or Jesus in hopes that their kid might be the Messiah. And there were different things that people were expecting whenever the uh, uh, term Messiah would come up. There were certain things people thought about it. Some people expected one who would bring peace over all the earth, and some expected one who would bring in the reign of righteousness and get rid of these nasty Gentile Romans who are walking on the Holy Land. Uh, some expected, most expected actually, one who would be a great national champion to end the uh, armies or to send the armies of the Jews as conquerors over all the world. Um, can you imagine? There were times when they would gather in the synagogues in little poor, dumpy, dirty, occupied Israel where they would talk about a glorious kingdom that would extend over all the world. And it seemed very unlikely, but it's going to be the kingdom of Christ, actually. And some expected a supernatural figure to come just straight down from God. So there were some people that whenever they said, uh, Oh, the Messiah has come. He's been born in Bethlehem. Huh? Yeah, he's in a stable. You've got to be kidding me. When Messiah comes, it's going to be... And everybody's going to see it. And it's going to be like that. And then there were others who had different views. Seeing the Messiah more as like a human figure. A general, a political le leader or something like that. And of course, Jesus Christ didn't fit any of those. At least not at his first coming. They'll get a shock at his second coming anyway. And so all of these things are wrapped up in it. So you can see when John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. They probably were kind of a... Relieved, But when they talked about Elijah, uh, Jesus himself said, and the prophecy about John in Luke chapter 1 was that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The Jews always assumed that it was going to be a literal appearance of Elijah. And that's why in our Christ on the Passover film, breaks my heart every time we watch that. I started to say every week when we watch it, but every time we watch it. Whenever the uh, little boy gets up from the Passover table to go and open the door for Elijah, who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And, of course, he's never there. It's always very sad. So are you Elijah? Are you the one that is coming like that? No, he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he himself said, no, I'm not Elijah. And then are you the prophet? Again, meaning that prophet that Moses had predicted the one who was going to come and be a prophet, another Moses, Moses II, Moses Jr., I guess you would say, whenever he would come. Because after all, if Moses could handle Pharaoh, Moses could handle Caesar, couldn't he? And so they always look forward to those things, but no, 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 I'm not any one of those things. So whenever we find this going on, we find that they are saying, then, then who are you? 
And why are you doing this weird stuff that you're doing? And they even question the idea about him baptizing there. He doesn't seem to be anything uh, like they really expected. So there's an interrogation that comes up. And then we find the questions that they ask right there. Are you the Messiah? That's the unasked question, of course. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? You must be somebody because you're out here doing all of this and you're causing quite a stir, as I said last week, making quite a splash. And then John goes into, when you get down to verse 23, what his purpose really is. And he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Well, normally we don't think that much about voices crying in the wilderness. What kind of a voice would cry in the wilderness? I like uh, to watch videos of, I don't, I don't particularly care for house cats, but I like big cats. I think cheetahs are cool and lions are kind of cool and like to watch the way they work. And the, and the way that they take care of each other and all of that, it's kind of interesting to me. And last night I was watching one, it was kind of sad. A little bitty lion cub, looked like he was probably about that big, uh, was abandoned by the pride, abandoned by his mother. And he's out there and he has to survive overnight. And there he is, and I guess you could say it's your typical voice crying in the wilderness. There he is in the middle of the of the desert, there he is in the middle of, you know, Africa somewhere, and uh, he's just making the noises that lion cubs make, and it's not intimidating in the least. Almost kind of a, like that. And you know what that does? That lion is looking for its mama, but you know what he's doing? He's signaling for predators to come. Cheetahs, particularly, they don't like to eat lion cubs, but they do like to kill them. Less competition for hunting. There are other predators out there that like to kill them. In fact, they even said that hippopotamus, while they are vegetarian, they do like to kill predators like that, especially if they are cubs. So this little baby is doomed, and he's crying out and crying out, and others are hearing, and... uh, By the way, he does get rescued by uh, the other lions in his pride. So he made it. But isn't that what you usually think of? You think of somebody going, help, where are you? I'm stranded out here. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. That's the kind of stuff that you hear a voice crying in the wilderness. And John says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. What was he doing? Is he lost? Obviously not. What is he doing crying out in the wilderness? And who listens to anybody in the wilderness? It's kind of like I saw on a show one time uh, where a guy goes, a little voice in the back of my head told me not to do that. Well, then why would you do it? He said, because another little voice said, what are you, crazy? Listening to little voices inside of your head? And that's the way it is with people in the wilderness. It's kind of like uh, some of you are old enough to remember when the car alarm things with the fobs came out, and um, that was going to keep all of our cars from being stolen, wasn't it? But what do you do when you're in a mall parking lot, and you, uh, uh, you go, oh, somebody's car's going off. 
and you walk right, right on past it, don't you? You're kind of immune to it. So if John had been just a typical voice in the wilderness, nobody would have paid just a whole lot of attention. He was weak. He was lost. He needed help. He was kind of in a, a, a bad shape, pathetic state of mind or something like that. But he goes on. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is he crying? Help me. I'm lost. No, he's saying, quote, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, back in those days, when roads were little more than just wagon wheel ruts, unless Rome would build a nice one, but not in Israel so much. In that part of the world, in the desert there around the Jordan, the roads would be basically just, you followed the ruts that were made by carts, that were made by wagons or something like that. But if somebody important were coming, if Caesar were coming, or if a general were coming, or a great conqueror or a dignitary, he would have someone that would go before him, and what they would do is they would have a crew that would work on the road. They wanted it to be smooth for the king. They didn't want it to be rough. They didn't want it to be just winding around. They wanted it to be straight. They would fill in the low places, and they would... Uh, Kind of like we would do with the bulldozer. They would take off the high places so that everything was smooth. Everything was level. It was plenty wide enough. They might even pave it if necessary. They were making ready the preparation here. Doing the preparation for the coming of the great king or the dignitary. And that's what John said. He goes, I'm just, I'm not Elijah. I'm just a voice. I'm not the prophet he ends up being a prophet Jesus said he was the last of the prophets but he's not a named known prophet he doesn't have a book in the Bible named after him we don't know anything about any of that stuff like we do some of the other hero prophets at least they didn't know in this time I'm just a voice kind of anonymous kind of uh, something that uh, well it's it's important but it's not the main thing and my deal is I'm preparing the way for the Messiah making the road straight instead of crooked, making it wider instead of being so stinking narrow, making it to where it is level, making it to where it would be comfortable for a dignitary. And everybody would have known exactly what he was talking about, especially this delegation that is coming from Jerusalem. John is not claiming anything for himself, but he is pointing to the coming of someone that is extremely important and would make them all just extremely nervous. Who is this person that you're talking about? And he even says in here, there's one that is among you that you don't know, you don't recognize him yet, uh, but you're going to, you're going to, because one of these days, these are the same people that are going to be trying him trying Jesus Christ in the house of Caiaphas. These are the same people that are going to send him to Pilate. These are the same people that are going to say, away with him, let him be crucified. But John is giving them fair warning. And uh, they were the ones who are, are skeptical about all of this. Look at verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. That, that sounds bad, doesn't it? And they asked him, saying... Well, then why then, if you're a nobody, if you're just this anonymous voice, why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, not Elijah, nor the prophet? Now, uh, this is something that was prophesied back in Isaiah 40, verse 3, 
the voices of one the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god and so now they're questioning him well then if you're this nobody if you're doing this and why are you baptizing now we might think uh, in terms of who authorized you to baptize because we believe that the church is a custodian of baptism and we want to make sure the baptism is done properly, scripturally, in order. And so we ask the church to authorize people to baptize. But John doesn't have any of this. This is not New Testament baptism. And so it makes the Pharisees kind of, hmm. So who brought you to a river like this to baptize people like these? Now how's John going to answer that? Now, let me tell you where the problem is. Baptism was not a typical Jewish ritual for Jews. You know, we talk about baptizing people into the faith, into the church. The Jews had a baptism, but you know what it was for? Gentiles. Nasty, dirty, stinking, idol-worshipping, pig-eating Gentiles. And if a Gentile came and said, I want to become a Jew, they had to be, if they were a male, they had to go through the ritual of circumcision. You'd have to be pretty serious about being a Jew to do that, wouldn't you? And the, all of these other things that had to, and then they had to be baptized, symbolizing I'm being cleansed out of all of the Gentile filth that is on me. The Gentile, they, the Jews didn't even like Gentile dust to come into the promised land. I'm going to be cleansed. And so they would baptize a proselyte. They would baptize a convert. They would baptize a Gentile. What is John saying when he is baptizing people from Israel? You are just as dirty as a Gentile. Jews need to be cleansed just like Gentiles need to be cleansed. Jews, the chosen people of God, are just as much a sinner as the pagan Gentiles all around us. Now, how do you think that is going to sit with the Pharisees? How do you think that is going to sit when they hear him say, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What do you mean vipers? And what do you mean the wrath to come? After all, we are the Pharisees. We are the holy ones. We set the standard of how you peasants are supposed to live. This is extremely uncomfortable. And yet John is extremely bold and extremely clear about all of this. And that's why this baptism was such a phenomena. And all of these Jews are going to be baptized just like Gentile converts would be. And John is doing this because he is telling them they needed to repent and they needed to be cleansed because they were just as dirty as the Gentiles. But I also want you to notice something else about John. This is amazing. Look at his humility. In spite of the way he was raised, in spite of the fact that he was older than Jesus, in spite of the fact that at this point he's much more popular than Jesus, nobody knows who Jesus is. They're not really paying attention to him, but they are paying attention to John. He's getting all of the press. And look at his humility. Go down to verse 26. John answered them saying, 
I baptize with water. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? But there stands one among you whom you do not know, and it is he who is coming after me. He's younger than me, in other words. And uh, he is preferred before me. Really? Doesn't look like it. Looks like you've got all the people. Looks like you're the popular. Looks like you're the big dog here. But he's preferred before me. And how bad is it? How much greater is he than me? The next thing. Whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And these things were done in that other Bethany that we talked about. That is beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now. What is this thing about the shoes? Middle Eastern people, they have this thing about shoes and about feet. Do you remember when uh, in the first Gulf War when Iraq's government was toppled and then the people started pulling down the statues of Saddam Hussein? And you saw all of these Middle Eastern people, all these Iraqis, taking off their sandals. Weird. And going up to the statue and hitting Saddam Hussein in the face with their sandals. That's about the worst insult that you can give in that part of the world. They even tell you if you're on a mission trip in that part of the world, don't sit like we usually do with your legs crossed or anything because you never want the sole of your foot to be showing. That's considered filthy, dirty. I mean, after all, it walks in manure and mud and muck and all of that kind of thing. And so they consider it to be really dirty and insulting. In fact, you remember when Jesus and his disciples went to have the Passover, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And then Jesus girds a towel and mm, then he starts washing their feet and it made them real uncomfortable because the master is acting like a slave. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. You know, I think that's why Peter said all those awkward things. He just didn't know what to say and he couldn't help it. He always was talking and talking when he should have been quiet. And uh, they were just bewildered by all of that. And John the Baptist, this popular guy, this descendant of a priest, this man who is of the tribe of Levi and of the house of Aaron, Moses' brother, he has that DNA in him. He makes this statement. He's coming and he doesn't baptize just with water like I do he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal now there was a rabbinic tradition in those days everybody had disciples it wasn't just Jesus everybody who was anybody had disciples that would follow them and the rabbi said that a disciple could do any work that a slave does. In other words, if you were a disciple, don't call it a, a great honor. You're little more than a slave to the person you're following. And they could make you do anything except one thing. You know what the rabbi said? You couldn't make a disciple untie or take off your shoes. That was just too far beneath you. And so what John is saying is there's another one coming. He's to be preferred before me. And uh, he'll baptize in a different way than I do. And guess what? You think I'm something? I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. Can you imagine the gags that would come out of that when you see what they were saying? So here John is saying I'm inferior to him. I can't baptize like him. I don't have a voice like him. And I'm not even worthy to be a slave 
to him. Being a slave to Jesus would be a promotion for someone who is like me. And so there where John could have picked up and he could have built up himself, he could have publicized himself, he could have done that, he didn't. He always pointed to Jesus. He took on the role of a servant where uh, there was this tradition saying you can't even untie their shoes and John is saying I am so unworthy in all of this and so far below him that I'm not even worthy to do the most menial things. Now you wonder why the Lord Jesus later on in John's life is going to say there is no one born of woman greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because he was bold because he pointed to Jesus, because he didn't have a high view of himself at all, and because he was content to be who he was supposed to be for the glory of God. I'm just a voice. What is a voice? Now, right now, I'm speaking. You say, well, we hear your voice. What if the room was completely dark, and all you heard was somebody up here over the sound system go, Oh! How do you identify that? Maybe there's enough in there where you could say, that's Pastor Greg's voice. Maybe not. It's anonymous. And John is saying, I'm just the anonymous guy who fixes the roads, who cries out, prepare the way of the Lord, and I baptize in something as common as water. The one who is coming is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off like the most menial slave and he is the one that you should listen to. In fact, it's going to be very shortly that he will say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Can I ask you a question? What if we had the characteristics of John the Baptist in our life? What if we weren't afraid to answer questions? What if we answered everything knowledgeably and honestly? There's always going to be something you don't know. But I guarantee you for all of us, there's more that we could know that we don't. And what if we never took any credit for ourselves? And we allowed ourselves to decrease in order that he might increase. And what if in our humility, we counted ourselves so low and so unworthy in ourselves... That we saw the grace of God as the greatest honor we could ever have. So that like King David, we could say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What if we looked at ourselves and said, I'm an unworthy servant, but I'll do anything you want because I want you to be magnified in our lives. How different would life be? How different would our impact be if we could just be a little more like this wonderful servant of God that Jesus called great? What if we were more like John the Baptist, this servant of God? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And I'm going to give you just a moment to pray. Where is it that you find yourself when you look at this great man of God, this great servant of God? Where do you find yourself lacking? Is it humility? Is it knowledge and giving answers? Is it boldness? Is it clarity and honesty? You know, this world makes it very, very difficult to be honest. 
There's a price to pay if you're truly honest as a servant of God. And yet that's exactly what this society needs is more people to take on this personality of John the Baptist and to be able to spotlight Christ and to do it everywhere we go and to see that as our purpose, a voice crying in the wilderness. Well, what about people? What do they think of me? What do they know about me? John the Baptist would say, what does that matter? As long as you do what he has told you to do for his glory. If that means starting at the point today of trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, trusting that he died on the cross and is the only payment for your sin, and you submit to him as Lord, start right there. If it starts today with you saying, I would like to be a member of this church, start right there. If it's you saying, I'm going to start carrying tracts around and giving them out as a gospel witness, start there. If you need to get up every morning and read a little bit out of your Bible every day and spend some time in prayer, start there. If it means that there are some habits in your life that you've been in conviction, uh, you've been under conviction about, and you need to lay them at the altar and get rid of them, start there. But start somewhere and do it for the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today because we find ourselves falling short of the glory of God. But Lord, we, uh, it's worse than that. We fall short of even people like John the Baptist or Elijah or any of those people. We can even find people in the church who seem to live a, a better Christian life than we do. We don't even get close, close to where we ought to be. So, Father, we pray you'd forgive us. And forgive us not because we promise to do better. That has nothing to do with it. Forgive us because Jesus died on the cross for that sin that we've committed. Cleanse us. Draw people to faith in Christ today. And draw believers to step up what they are doing for the glory of God. Help us to be more like these great men in the Bible, like John the Baptist. Help us start taking baby steps be patient with us as we learn, but don't let us just walk off and forget about it. Let us be salt and light in this lost and dying world, ambassadors for Christ, for your glory, as John was. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.